Let's pray together. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this time that we can be here, that you have drawn us, and we can be here confident that it is not by our own intellect, by our own strength, but you, by your Spirit, uh, will teach us through your Word. And Father, how much we need to hear. So please, in your grace and kindness, pour forth your truth that we may know, that we may be conformed, that we may live in light of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, has anyone here uh, ever met a Jew? Like, some have, is it? Okay, amazing. Because I have not. I, I have met a Caucasian that converted to Judaism, and, and that was it. So I've never met a Jew before. Uh, neither have I met a rabbi. And uh, the passage today is all about Jews and their issues. Now, it is significant because of where we are in the context of Romans. Okay, you need to flip back to chapter 1, verse 18, to uh, recall where we are at. Because there, in chapter 1, verse 18, uh, Paul gives the verdict that the wrath of God, God's settled anger, God's judgment against sin, is coming upon humanity. And, and the way I like to picture it is um, explorers on an alien mothership. Okay, so they, they, they are exploring this alien mothership and they, they don't know whether the aliens are friendly or not. So everyone is there and then it turns out that the aliens are not friendly. And so what happens is the explorers will start running to different escape hatches, but then the hatch closes, and they can't escape. So Paul has given this verdict that God's wrath, his anger on sin is coming upon everyone. And then the reaction for some people is to run. And so the first group that wanted to run, they ran to this escape hatch, those who thought they were morally good enough. But then Paul closes the escape hatch. Then another group, because they were Jewish, they had the law, they, they thought they could run to that escape hatch. But in the middle of chapter 2, again, Paul closes that escape. So there's no escape. That is Paul trying to all understand that we all face this verdict of being under God's wrath. Now at the end of dealing with you know, closing that escape hatch, the, the one that the Jews would run to. Um, basically, he said, you know, the law, having the law doesn't save you, being circumcised doesn't save you. Now, the reaction that we see here in chapter 3 is of the, an imaginary Jewish uh, debater. You know, at the end of what Paul said, he would raise his hand, hey, hey, hey well, what advantage has the Jew then? I mean, aren't we got special people, this and that? But now you, you close this escape hatch. What advantage has the Jew? So Paul, uh, at the beginning of chapter 3, will deal with this question. Now, I, I wonder if you notice, he repeats the question. But he says it one time in verse 1, and another time in verse 9. Okay, now this is Paul being a rabbi. Now, I was told that a rabbi... Even today, what a Jewish rabbi does is he does on the one hand, but on the other, like that. So that's, 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 
okay, I mean, it looks like a Jewish rabbi has an easier job than a pastor. But he'll go on the one hand, like that, like that, but on the other hand, like that. Okay, so you can see in your outline, um, you know, on the one hand, on the other, because this is what Paul is doing. So what advantage does the Jew have? Well, Paul says, on the one hand, a lot. Great advantage. And the advantage is that the Jews were given the words of God. Now, I want to try and help us appreciate the advantage by getting you to imagine if next Sunday, two men appear. Okay? One of them, he is brought up in a Christian family, in a good church, and for many years he went to Sunday school, uh, and the Sunday school teachers were dedicated, you know, like Vanessa, you know, who's leaving. And then after he grew up, he went to youth group, and in youth group there were dedicated youth group leaders like Shirley, She's also leaving. Uh, but, you know, he, 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 grow up, he grows up in this environment where he, from young, he's nurtured. You know, at home, his parents read the Bible to him. And you know, he's surrounded by people who look to this book for direction, for guidance. And as he grows up, he, you know, just like subconsciously, he, he knows the type of friends to avoid. Uh, subconsciously, even without like really studying the Bible, but because he's been given Bible input, it helps him as he makes his decisions. Okay, so that is a sort of man. The first, the second one, is a guy who um, just got converted one month ago. Okay, so maybe someone from BTPC uh, is his colleague, and then you know over the course of uh, a business trip. There was an occasion to share the gospel, and the person believed. And then one month ago, he's, he's never heard of Jesus, this and that, but at a business trip, he heard, he believed, and now he's in church. Now, the thing to say is that both of these men, if they are saved, they are equally saved by the gospel. But surely you can see that the one who grew up in that Christian environment, years of Bible input, has an advantage. So it would be to the first man that we would say, hey, one of our youth group leaders is leaving. You know, have you done youth before? You know, because he has that background, he has that information, he has that uh, upbringing. So the Jews had a great advantage because they were the ones of all people who were given the word of God. Now, Paul will say a lot more about the advantage that the Jew has uh, later in chapter 9. But from here, as he talks about the Jews being given the word of God, he has in mind something special about the word of God that are given. Not just the word of God in general, the Old Testament, but the word of God in the Old Testament, the promise contained of how God take the Jewish people and make them his people and how he would be their God. So Paul has in mind the specific promise, the specific covenant that God made with the Jewish people. He would be their God, they would be his people. And so this is the reason why, in verse 3, he now anticipates the question that the Jews were, okay, okay, you say we are given this word of God and it's an advantage, but doesn't the word of God say that God has made a promise with us? And so the question that Paul now anticipates is, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Okay, you've got to try and understand what Paul is trying to say here. Basically, 
the Jewish opponent is saying, Paul, you have just closed this escape hatch. That the Jews, even though they possess the law, even though they possess this promise, they, they cannot escape out of this verdict that God's wrath is coming. So, yes, some of us were unfaithful. But just because we are unfaithful, if God judges us, doesn't that make him unfaithful to the promise he made? How dare you, Paul? How, how dare you say that because God is going to judge us, God, you're saying that God will be unfaithful to his promise. Okay, can, can, can you appreciate the force of this argument? Because God made the promise that they would be his people. But now Paul says, their scapegoat is closed. So the Jewish opponent is saying, how dare you? You're insinuating that God is unfaithful. Now, I wonder whether you hear a modern-day equivalent of this. Uh, I remember the time I was during, uh, doing reservists. My Catholic friend and I were talking about religion because, you know, in reservists, there's all this time to just sit down and talk, right? Uh, and uh, what, what better thing to do than to talk about God? So anyway, we were talking about God. And I, talking to my Catholic friend, right? I said, yes, it is those who believe in Jesus who will be saved. And so he went, what? You, so you mean the Muslim, the sincere Muslim, the sincere Buddhist, they will not be saved? Ha! How dare you? How dare you insinuate that God will be so unloving and punish people just because they are not Christians? How dare you say that God is unloving? You see, this, this objection, this objection to God judging, that if God judges us, he is unloving. If God judges us, he is unfaithful. See, this objection is alive and kicking. And so Paul is dealing with it. And he says, yes. Am I saying that God is unfaithful? So he goes on to say, verse 4, Not at all. Let God be true. And every human being a liar. So even if not just some were unfaithful, even if every single one, Okay, were a liar, even if every single one were untrue to the covenant, God will still be true. And then he gives up, he gives his evidence, he gives his support for this by quoting Psalm 51. Right, as it is written, and this is uh, David speaking, and this is in the context of David after committing adultery with Bathsheba. You know, he's, he's, he's confessing, he's coming before God in repentance, and Paul quotes, Psalm 51 verse 4, where David says, So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. David is saying to God, yes, God, when you are judging me, when you judge me for my sin, you, you are faithful, you are true to yourself, you are proved right. Now we read Psalm 51, I mean, okay, at least you did. I was down with the youth at the farewell. But when, when you read Psalm 51, did you notice that Psalm 51 doesn't begin with David saying, God, I know I sinned, but you must also take some responsibility, right? I mean, you, you are the one that put that woman bathing down there when I was walking here. And God, why did you give me such good eyesight? You see, I mean, okay, Psalm 51 does not begin that way. David comes and he says, against you, you only have I sinned. And so when you judge... You are proved right. So essentially what Paul is doing here, he started out by answering 
okay, okay, what advantage has the Jew? And he answered that, but very quickly, what he's doing is he's defending God. Because these Jewish people running to this escape hatch and Paul closes and says, hey, you mean we are being judged by God? And Paul is here defending God's judge. That if God judges even his own people, he is true, he is still faithful, he has not broken his promises. Because God is faithful to his promise of saving his people, but the promise of saving his people came with a condition. That if they worship idols, if they turn away from him, then instead of blessing, there would be curses. So when God judges, he is still being faithful to his word, you see. So the imaginary Jewish objector continues, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? So, the imaginary Jewish objector that Paul is dealing with is now saying, okay, okay, if God executes judgment, then he is proved faithful. So, if he, in executing judgment, his glory, his faithfulness is accentuated, then isn't he executing judgment on the people that is causing his glory to increase? I mean, you, you see the way the argument that Paul is dealing with. And so, Paul says, I am using a human argument, which means he's using a stupid and a nonsensical argument. And his answer is certainly not. How can, if God, if he judges people who deserve judgment, and that accentuates his glory, accentuates his faithfulness, how can that then make him unjust? Because the thing that even the Jews would agree with is that, yes, God, God must judge those pagans. God must judge those Gentiles. And so if they agree that God can judge the world, then surely God can judge his own people. Now, okay, if you are not able to follow the intricacies of the argument, just bear in mind that what Paul is doing is he is defending God's right to judge. See, against every possible objection, um, you know, did he make these promises? Okay, Paul is saying, no. When God executes his judgment, this wrath of God, now being revealed, then will be finally revealed at the end, this wrath of God on human sin, when God executes judgment on that, he is being true to himself. He's being true to his promises. He's being utterly faithful, even in judgment. Now, Paul goes on a bit further, and possibly it is not the Jews who are saying this, but he is just anticipating the people trying to poke holes in his argument. Okay? So the, the people who are trying to poke holes in his argument are saying, okay, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Now, why not say, okay, as some people say about Paul, okay, let us do evil 
that good may result. So if I do more evil, God judges me more, and then it enhances His glory and faithfulness, hey, then let's sin some more. Okay? Well, this is a question that Paul will deal with at the end of chapter 5, beginning of chapter 6. But right here, he just says, the people who say these things, their condemnation is just. Okay, so, um, remember what Paul is doing? He is defending God's right to judge. And the way he has come about it is he said, okay, on the one hand, what advantage has the Jew? Great in every way. But, God remains God. God is faithful. God is still true to himself even when he executes judgment on his own people. So that was the first on the one hand. Now in verse 9, on the other hand, what advantage has the Jew? Well, on the other hand, he says, verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we, do we Jews have any advantage? Not at all. On the one hand, oh, a lot of advantage, you know, great advantage in every... But on the other hand, no advantage. Because we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Okay, so now Paul is bringing together chapter 1 where he focused on the Gentiles. The Gentiles under the wrath of God. Chapter 2, he's dealt with the escape hatches. The moral person, Jewish person. Okay, under God's wrath. So now in chapter 3 verse 9, on the other hand, Jews, any advantage? No advantage because the big conclusion. Jew and Gentile. Now when he says Jew and Gentile, he is referring to every single person because every person, you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile. Right? Gentile is uh, every apart from being Jewish. So Jew and Gentile under the power of Jew and Gentile are like your master. The one that you must do the bidding to, the one that you must obey. He pictures sin as a boss, as a master. Every single person under the mastery of sin. And then he says in verse 10, as it is written. Now you see the genius of this. The Jewish people thought that, hey, we have the law. We have the words of God. We have an advantage. But now Paul will show from uh, selected quotations from the law, from the word of God, to prove his point that Jew and Gentile alike under the power of sin. See, as it is written. You see, Paul is talking to the people who believe in the scriptures. And what he needs to do, all he needs to do, is just say, as it is written. And if we are people who are people of the book, if you can show me, ah, as it is written, then no matter what my prior preferences, what my prior misconceptions, what my prior thoughts about the issue, if you can show me, ah, as it is written, then I must accept. Because we believe this to be God's word to us. And so Paul says, yes, I've made this conclusion and now I will show you as it is written in God's word. Now, we don't have time to examine each of these quotations in detail, but the, the range of quotations that Paul has chosen touch on every major aspect of human life. So he begins, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one person that has 
a right standing before God. You know, legally speaking, does anyone have a right? No, no one has that right standing before God, not even one. Verse 11, there is no one who understands. Right? Every single person has suppressed the truth. Every person's understanding has been darkened because of sin. There is no one who seeks God. Now, if you think about it, you may actually be prone to disagree with Paul, but you might go, hey, no, 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 my, my Muslim friend seeking God, you know, uh, even my you know, non-Christian friends, they, they, they are looking for peace, they are looking, I mean, how, how can Paul say there's no one who seeks God? Well, what Paul is saying here is he's making a distinction. He's not just saying there's no one who seeks after peace. There's no one who seeks after spiritual blessing. See, many people can be seeking after the good things that God gives spiritually. But what he's saying is there's no one who is seeking, truly seeking the giver, God himself. No one is truly seeking to know and worship this God. See, verse 12, all have turned away. See, volitionally, willfully, we have made that choice. We have turned away. There is no one who does good in our actions, in our conduct. There's no good. Not that it is totally evil, but even our best deeds are contaminated with sin. Their throats, verse 13, are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Our speech, tainted by evil. It's like a, it's like a grave with rotting bodies in there. That, that, that's what our tongues are like. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. Uh, shed whose blood? Of course, shed someone else's blood. So here it's talking about the, the fallenness of our relationships with one another. Yes, we may not literally shed another person's blood. But surely in our sin, in our betrayal, and our, the hurt that we cause one another, ruin and misery... There's a lack of peace in our, in our relationships with one another. And then last of all, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Our relationship with God is not right. We do not fear Him. We do not have awe of Him. We do not reverence Him. So as it is written, Jew, Gentile alike under sin. And so now Paul in verse 19 and 20 comes to his big conclusion. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law. Now, he is specifically talking about the Jews because the Jews were the ones under the law. And so the law, these quotations that he's just quoted, condemn the people under the law. And so the point is, if even the Jews who have God's law, if even they will be condemned, then there's no hope for anyone else. If even God's own people, because of their sin, their falling short of the law, if they are judged, then there is no hope for anyone else. That's his point. So that's why every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now I was told that in the first century, in the law court, 
when the defendant finished giving his defense, he would indicate that he had finished by putting his mouth, his hand over his mouth to indicate that he had finished speaking. And uh, that's the reason why uh, Paul and Jesus in their own trial, they were slapped, right, by the the, the priest, slapped by the, the Roman official. Because Paul giving his his defense and Jesus when talking, slap. That's not a good defense. You, know, you should be putting your hand over your mouth. And so Paul says, on that final day, when every single person who has ever lived stand before God on his judgment throne, there will be a sound of silence. There will be no joker, there will be no person there trying to, hey, you know, I, what about this? Hey, I've done this. No, the whole world, silent, because the whole world will be convinced of their guilt before this holy and mighty God. Everyone's hand will be over their mouth, because there's not one shred of defense anyone can bring up. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law shows us just how far we fall short. So it has been a lengthy section where Paul argues from verse 18, chapter 1, all the way to here, making this this point right. Everyone under sin, everyone under God's judgment rightfully. So, in terms of uh, application, I got uh, on the one hand and on the other hand. Okay, so first, on the one hand, on the one hand, in light of what Paul has been saying, are we convinced that this is the state and reality of every single person in the world? Because just um, last week, talking with some of my students about this, and I was surprised a good number of them actually believe that you know, in the deepest, darkest tribe, in Africa, in Amazon, wherever, the people who haven't heard the gospel, you know, just because missionaries haven't come, you know, if the person is innocent enough, even, he, even though he hasn't heard the gospel, that person will go to heaven. Now, what is my official stand on this? My official stand is that it is true. Now you must listen to me. Yeah? It is true. That if in some far-flung place where the gospel hasn't come, you know, no, no Bible, no missionaries, if there is the person who is innocent enough, you know, obeys his conscience consistently enough, that person will, because he is innocent enough, go to heaven and spend an eternity in heaven. Now, the only problem is that person doesn't exist. That person doesn't exist. There is no person who is innocent enough. Because what did Paul say? Everyone has been given a universal revelation of God. God has made himself clear, plain to see in his creation. But people have suppressed the truth. People have not honoured him 
or glorified Him or given thanks to Him as they should. Every one has not honored God as He should. So, yes, the innocent person, if he is innocent, he does not need the gospel of Jesus Christ to save him. He can go to heaven on his own merits if he's innocent. But that person does not exist. And so it was, you know, just looking at my students, they were like, hey, then, the, the, the people there, you mean, they're not going to be saved? And the answer, of course, is they can be saved if the church that has been commissioned to bring them the gospel gets there in time. See, the gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. Now, some people may not go all the way, okay, 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 okay let's, don't talk about the perfectly innocent, innocent person, but what about the person whose good <clears throat> outweighs their bad? Ah, I mean, surely God is not so unfair that, that, you know, these people in this tribe, they don't have the gospel, but surely God will judge based on a scale. That, that if their good works outweigh their bad works, then surely God, you know, can let them in. Maybe not enjoy as much privileges, but, but, but surely God can... You know, now, okay, let's take the, this argument to its logical conclusion. So let's say there is that tribe where, you know, a lot of these people, their good outweigh they're bad. Okay? Now, this argument is then saying, these people, if God you know, is fair, these people will get a pass into heaven because their good outweighs their bad. Now, do you know what is the worst thing that could happen to them? Is that if some you know, enthusiastic you know, uh, you know, church that wants to obey the Great Commission sends missionaries to their tribe, tells them the gospel, and then they'll go, Ay, but we've always believed in our son, God, this and that. You tell us this, you know, crucify. No, no, we, we don't want, we don't want. Please, please go. What has just happened? This tribe, for many people, because their good outweigh their bad, these people were on their way to heaven. They were doing good until some missionaries came and told them the gospel, and then because they rejected the gospel, now... Those who reject the gospel are going to an eternity in hell. They were doing well without us. Now, is that, is that what this book shows us and teaches? No, it is clear. Everyone under the power of sin, everyone held accountable to God, everyone, because of their sin, will face the wrath of God. That's why the church must stop playing games. That's why the church must stop fooling around, busying ourselves with what the world says is important, wasting time on petty, trivial things when our Savior has given us a commission. The only thing that will save anyone is the righteousness revealed in the gospel. So that's on the one hand. Do you believe this is the true state of every single person. Now, on the other hand, do you believe that this is your true state? Do you believe that all that Paul has been saying here, that this is not just talking about someone else, this is not just talking about people out there or people around me, but this is talking about you, 
that you have suppressed the truth, you have not honoured God as you should, that, that, that even though your life is filled with a lot of good works, but the very things you point out about others are the very things you do yourself. That yes, you may have the advantage of you know, being baptised and, and you know, partaking in communion. You've had all this advantage of growing up, you belong in a Christian family, this and that, but our only hope is our trust and our confidence in Christ and in Christ alone. You see, the danger for many people, and I would even venture to say, because this is a you know, fairly large room, there may be some of you here, that because you have not come to totally see your face in these passages, Right? You, you, you may have studied Romans many times. You may even have led Bible studies on this many times. But I, I don't know why. There, there's just this, this dissonance, this gap. Okay? You, you, you see the truth. You're able to articulate the truth. But you do not truly in your deepest of heart see that this is you. This is you. This is you. Your face is here. My face is here. This is talking about us apart from Christ. And so if you do not see that, then there will always be some barrier. We we will not embrace Christ. We will not hold on to Him as tightly. We will not place our confidence on Him as much as we should. It will be a bit like the person driving down the road. He sees Jesus. And he goes, Hey, that would be a very useful thing to have. So he stops the car, opens the boot, puts Jesus in the boot. I'll need this one day. Now I hope none of us are like this. But some of you may may be the person that driving down the road, you see Jesus and you go, hey, I need Jesus. Jesus will be very useful for guiding me. And then you stop and, and you say, oh, sorry, Jesus, can you get in the back seat? Because front seat already occupied. I've got my career. I've got my dreams. Okay, I've got all those things here. But Jesus, okay. Take a back seat, please. Some of you may be the person driving down. You see Jesus. Okay, you stop and you open up the passenger seat. Jesus, come, please. Please sit beside me. I need your help. I need your guidance. I need your advice for my life, for my journey. Please sit beside me. You know, I need a companion. Guide me so that I know where to go. But don't you see that the only person who drives down that road and when he sees Jesus will get out of the driver's seat and say to Jesus, Jesus, please, please get in there because I know I have made a mess of my life. I know what a sinner I am. I, I cannot be in control. No, you need, you need to come and take control. You need to be my saviour. You need to be my Lord. The only person who will get out of the driver's seat and let Jesus sit there as the one who sees his face. So do you see your face in this passage that it is talking about you? It is talking about me. May God help us see so that we may trust in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen.